Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. What do we make of Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs? Is it an erotic love poem or an allegory for the love between God and the Jewish people? The answer might be yes. Today we're listening to a lecture from Rabbi Shai Held on Shir Hashirim and what it might mean to understand a text both literally and allegorically at the same time. Let's listen in. The topic for this morning is what if Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, really is an allegory after all? And I want to just begin by giving a little bit of context for that question and sort of what I want to try to do in this session that we have together. If you were to ask a modern Bible scholar, almost to a head, they would say, Shir HaShirim, the Song of Songs, is a love poem, or perhaps a series of love poems that are heavily erotic, physical, sensual, etc. Then, once they say that, they have to wrestle with a series of questions. Namely, first of all, what's it doing here in the Bible? Does it have a religious message? Does it somehow have a religiously subversive message? Is it just here because early Jews read it wrongly, they would insist, as an allegory of the relationship between God and Israel, or is there some other explanation? On the other hand, if you ask a traditional Jewish or Christian reader, they would tell you that this text is first and foremost, and perhaps only, an allegory. Jews traditionally read this text as an allegory in one of two possibly interrelated ways. Either it was an allegory of God's relationship with the Jewish people, and or it was an allegory of God's relationship with the individual soul. Now, liberal Jews tend to dismiss this reading. They see it as overly pious and perhaps even a little prudish. And it's sort of like the assumption that, oh, of course, Shira Shirim is really a love poem. It is what it seems to be. It's a love poem. What I find interesting is that recently, a small handful of scholars have argued that the allegorical reading is at least partially correct, that it is what the text originally means. Some people think it's only an allegory, but I find myself at least drawn to another possibility one that has been argued by the Bible scholar Ellen Davis, who's a professor of Bible at Duke University, which is that Shira Shirim is meant to be read on at least two levels simultaneously. On one level, it is what it seems to be. It is an erotic love poem. On the other hand, it is also meant, she says, to be read as an allegory. So if I were to revise the title of my class, it would be not what if Shira Shirim really is an allegory, but what if Shira Shirim really is also an allegory? And what we're going to see is that Shira Shirim um, is a text that is replete, saturated with intertextual references. It is a text by someone who knows much of the rest of Tanakh very well and is constantly alluding to other biblical texts. And what we will see, and this is why I've become kind of fascinated by this reading, we will see the way that the text makes references to phrases that are important in other texts 
as ways of talking about the relationship between God and Israel. Was that a sentence that people could follow? Should I say it again? Right. In other words, there are many phrases in this text that elsewhere in Tanakh are clearly references to the covenant and the love relationship between God and Israel. And that seemingly bolsters or buttresses an attempt to read this also allegorically. Okay. Now, I'll just say one last thing before we move on. And I think this is really kind of interesting is that in many ways, I would read Shira Shirim as imagining a time that is different from the time the prophets describe, the times the prophets describe. So much of the prophetic literature is about the failure of the love relationship between God and Israel, the brokenness of the love. Shira Shirim, at least in part, is an attempt to imagine a time when the love between Israel and God is renewed and fulfilled. It's a kind of almost messianic picture of a redeemed love relationship. So that's what I want to say by way of framing. Some of the examples I'm going to give you are clearly more convincing and more important than others. What I'm sort of interested in a little bit is what philosophers call a cumulative case. That is, when you start adding things up, it really begins to point you in a, in, in, a, in a particular direction. Davis uses the phrase that I think is helpful, even though I, I'm not sure I would use this phrase, but she uses the phrase that the text is full of recycled language. And the recycled language places this love poem, as I said, in the context of God's passionate and yet troubled relationship with Israel, which is the story that the rest of the Bible presumably tells. Shira Shirim Aleph Aleph. Chapter one, verse one, the opening of this text, I just want to observe that the superlative, Shira Shirim, which means the best of songs, right? Shira Shirim, that phrase, a noun followed by that noun in the plural as a way of expressing the superlative is frequently associated with God. So you can look at Dvarim 10.17, which is the second text on the, te- on the page. Ki Adonai Elohechem hu... Eloheha Elohim va'adoneha Adonim. God is this. And of course, the Beit HaMikdash is known, the, the center of the Beit HaMikdash as, is known as the Kodesh HaKodashim, the association with God of that kind of grammatical structure. This is, I would say, a weak link in the case I'm going to try to build. But I think it is an interesting link in light of everything else. Song of Songs 1-4 says... Moshcheni acharecha narutza, right? Draw me after you, let us run. Heviani hamelech chadarav. The king has brought me into his chambers. Nagila venismechabach. Let us delight and rejoice in you and your love. Naskira dodecha miyain. Let us savor your caresses more than wine. Dodecha, I think, has a more sensual feel than just a more abstract love. So I'm translating it as, as caresses or lovemaking or something like that. Meisharim ahevucha. They have loved you rightly or they have loved you like new wine. Those are the two ways you could understand Meisharim. But here's the interesting thing. The phrase nagila venismecha is a, a phrase that appears again and again to describe Israel's celebrating God's love. So if we scroll down for a minute to the last text on the page, 
So we have Nagila Venismecha, Yagel and Sameach. I'm going to get to the better ones in a minute. Um, then Psalm 48. Yismach Hartzion, let Mount Zion rejoice. Tagelna Benot Yehuda, the towns of Judah exult. Again, Samach and Gil. Yismechu Hashamayim v'tagel Haaretz, Simcha and Gila again. And then the clincher, as if these three weren't enough, Zehayom Asa Hashem, familiar to many of you from the Hallel, Psalm 118. This is the day which God has made. Nagila v'nismecha vo. We will rejoice and delight in it. Or maybe even in him. Okay? Now, Nagila v'nismecha bach is the phrase we just saw in Shira Shirim. Okay? And I think that there is potentially something interesting about the fact that that phrase is usually used to praise God and here is used to praise the lover, perhaps intimating that the lover is or is also God. Now here, I just want to note that the woman says, the young woman says at the end of chapter one, verse six, Karmi Sheli lo natarti, my own vineyard, I did not guard. Now, I don't know whether this is all that meaningful, but I think it's striking that the vineyard is sometimes a biblical metaphor for God. And sometimes the vineyard is described as a source of bitter frustration and disappointment for God. For example, Isaiah 5.1, the song of the vineyard where God's frustration about God's vineyard gets expressed. That leads Davis to say that maybe the emphasis that appears several times in this text on caring for the vineyard and on using its fruits well suggests that the painful history of the vineyard as disappointment is attempted to be overcome here, where the vineyard here becomes a source of pleasure and delight rather than a source of frustration and disappointment. She asks, the young woman asks her lover, Hagidali Sha'havanafshi, tell me, O one whom I whom my whole being loves. Where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you cause to lie down in the afternoon? Now I just want to, this is really not our topic. But I want to just point out that the way that the author of Song of Songs loves the Hebrew language and its ambiguity and the innuendo, frankly, that that makes possible. You notice that the JPS translates, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you rest them at noon? And then if you have some Hebrew, you can note that that's interesting because the Hebrew contains no direct object at all. JPS has added the words, your sheep. Rather, what she says is, Tell me where you cause to lie down. Where do you bed in the afternoon? As if I think potentially to insinuate or intimate, that would be useful information for me because I'd like to be the one that you um, cause to lie down in the afternoon. Pardon my, my bluntness, but I think this text is highly erotic on its surface. Okay. Now, what is striking to Davis and other readers is calling the lover etche ahava nafshi because what is arguably the most important mitzvah in the Torah, ve'avta et Hashem elokecha, 
Bechol nafshecha. Love the Lord your God with your whole nefesh. And now she's calling the lover the one whom my nefesh loves. Now you can say, well, that's a coincidence. I mean, that's all it is. Or you can say, no, that's not a coincidence. It's an allusion. And an allusion is meant to remind you that this phrase has multiple meanings and possibilities. And this is going to amplify. Some of you are going to say, oh, this totally proves that I buy it. And others of you are going to say, oh, come on now. Okay, source five. Ani hasharon. I am a rose or whatever that flower is that's been referenced there of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, here's the thing. Chavatzelet, a rose or whatever it means exactly, appears in Isaiah 35 and Shoshana appears in Hosea 14. And in those instances, they are symbols of the beauty of Zion restored after being alienated from God and utterly destroyed by enemies. Many of the images from Hosea 14 are repeated in Shira Shirim. So could it be that God's promise of generous love, which is expressed in the last chapter of Hosea, is actually brought to fruition here in this chapter? Again, just to say it in another way, for Yeshayahu and for Hosea, the blooming of the land is a sign of, a symbol of, the restoration of God and Israel's love relationship. And so here, when the lover refers to herself by these flowers that are used to mean that in Isaiah and Hosea, one wonders at least whether this is a meaningful way of bringing the two things together. Okay? Now, also, what many scholars have argued, this goes back, I think, in feminist writing to Phyllis Tribble, one of the real mothers of feminist Bible scholarship, but has been argued by lots of people, is that if you read Shirashirim closely, you see images of Eden left and right. And the restoration of Eden, when God and humanity could go for a walk together in the afternoon, as it were, right, there is a way in which the restoration of Eden may also have this possibility. Just to give you an example, Isaiah 35.1, that the land will tifrach kachavatzelet, the land will blossom like a rose. Hosea 14.6, yifrach kashoshana, the land will blossom. And again, the blossoming of the land is a sign for, a stand-in for, a correspondence with the re-blossoming of the relationship between God and Israel. I, I just brought you here, Genesis 3.18, just to remind you of the way that the story of the Garden of Eden and the, and the failure there leads to a vision of the land as being cursed rather than flourishing. And this is one of the texts that people use to sort of contrast with the blossoming of the land in Shira Shirim. Now, number six. So she's going to say here, Al Mishkavi Balelot, as I slept at night, or as I should translate it more literally, as I lay on my bed at night, I sought the one whom my being loves. I sought him but could not find him. So there you have again the phrase, if you bought it the first time, you'll buy it now. If you didn't buy it the first time, you can email Jenna Andelman and form a club. Um, uh, it's a little joke. Um, okay, not a successful joke, but a joke nevertheless. Um, 
So, and, and interestingly, by the way, that phrase is used four times um, in, 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 in this kind of small unit of verses that this is part of. Now, Levakesh, let's look at, at Exodus 33, 7. Levakesh can mean, now this is by itself, is certainly not a convincing case, but Levakesh can mean to seek out an oracle from God. If you were seeking an oracle, this is where you would go, okay? But then what I want you to see that I think is interesting is that the phrase bikashti umatsati, I saw it and I found, or bikashti vilomatsati, I saw it and I didn't find, is commonly connected to Israel's pursuit of God. So look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 29, Dvarim Dalil Chavtet, Uvikashtem Mishamet Adonai Lohecha, Umatsata Kitidrishenu. If you seek out Bakesh, the Lord your God, Umatsa, Bakash Umatsa, Bikesh Umatsa, there, that phrase is clearly about Israel's search for God. And then again in Jeremiah, Uvikashtem Oti Umitzatem, you will seek me and find me. And then when Israel fails God, it seeks after its lovers in Hosea chapter 2, uvikashtam delotimtsa. She shall seek her lovers and not be able to um, overtake them. And then God says in Isaiah, nidrashti lelosha'alu, nimtseti lelovikshuni. I made myself found even though they didn't seek me. Again, matzah and bikesh are constantly references to Israel's relationship to God. And then, just to bolster what I'm trying to say here, and this one I think is weak on its own, but may be powerful in light of the Bakash Umatzah piece, is the Amishkavi Balelot, that phrase is a phrase that is sometimes used to refer to what a person does in prayer and what their heart is most set on. So Psalm 4, verse 5, Rigzu ve'altechetahu, tremble, but sin no more. Imru v'ilvavchem al mishkevechem v'domu sela. Think about it deeply. That is, think about God deeply on your mishkav, on your bed, that same term. And then the, the Psalm 6 from Tachanun, um, which is familiar to many of you, that one I, I, I will say I am not very convinced by myself, but I think it's an, another example of how the religious life reaches its, its like climactic suffering at times in a person when they're in, the, in their bed. What I also want to observe here, just to make this emotionally more meaningful as opposed to just textually meaningful, but also like existentially meaningful, is that Song of Songs is actually, in my mind at least, a much more complicated text than one about love requited. It is also a text about love that constantly keeps missing. It is requited and then elusive. It is there and then not there. It is fraught with danger and has moments of profound disappointment. And in that sense, it becomes a very moving metaphor for the relationship of God and Israel. There is so much love and yet also disappointment and frustration. It's a marriage that never quite seems to work. Even in this moment that imagines it being redeemed under the surface, there is a lack of redemption. 
And I find that moving. Now, even if you don't buy that as the pshat, as a drash that has a long history in Jewish culture, it's still very quite power. It's quite powerful. Now, just to be clear about from a couple of comments that have come in, allegory does not mean at all that it's not true. Quite the contrary. It means phrases that appear to be literal about two humans are in part metaphorical, allegorical about God's relationship to humanity. It's not that it isn't real. It's that this text actually makes it even more real. And by the way, I'll say, I'll add this. If this association is right, then two things happen. One is that theology is eroticized and the other is that eros is theologized. That's worth smoking for a bit, right? One's relationship with God is understood in deeply erotic terms and one's eros potentially, one's erotic relationships are potentially in some way understood as drawing reference to God. And if you think about that, you know, in a non-crude way, the notion of love as pulling us out of ourselves and out of our boundaries towards a more expansive embrace of the other, that's what religion is ultimately trying to do. Right? God is the lover or my spouse is the lover or whatever it might be. So I think there's something um, very moving here and, 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 and powerful. Rachel Adler, the influential Jewish feminist thinker, teacher at Hebrew Union College um, in Los Angeles. Rachel Adler actually argues, well, if you want to make this story about lovers and allegorical, why are you assuming that the male lover is God and the female lover is Israel? Might you consider reversing that? And then you have an incredibly vulnerable God who's seeking after the male Israel. Now, that's not the pshat. I, that, if you'll forgive me, that's not the pshat of the allegory. But it may be the way of redeeming the allegory and complicating the gender picture. This text performs the very thing it implies God does. It appears and then it disappears. It is made tzitzmina harakim. It peers into the window and then it pulls back. The text performs the very thing it's talking about. Is it about God? I don't know. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Come on. Yes, it is. No, it's not. That's a little bit like seeking God in this world. I think I had an experience of God yesterday. Today, I'm an atheist. The world is devoid of God. Oh my God, I just had an experience with someone. I'm telling you God was right there. Where's God? I'm not sure. If you know what that's like, maybe this text is not crazy to be read about God. Again, I would say here, put my cards on the table. I'm 70% persuaded by this reading that Ellen Davis puts forward. That 30% is a lot of not persuaded. It just seems to me that you'll see in a minute a couple more that may bring even the reluctant Rabbi Noah Arno on board with this. Let's see if I can do it, okay? Mizot olamin hamidbar kitimrot ashan. Who is this that comes from the desert like columns of smoke in clouds of mikuteret mor ulevona? Myrrh and frankincense, Mikol Avkatrochel, of all the powders of the merchant. Now, so this person is imagined as wearing perfume, which is myrrh and frankincense. Now, just to give some context here, if the woman in question is the bride Israel, it's interesting that the wilderness, which is often described as a place of testing and of suffering, is imagined also in Jeremiah in a verse that is familiar to many of you 
as a place of honeymooning with God. I remember how you wandered with me in the desert. But here's the thing that's interesting. And welcome to the history of perfuming, something you did not think you'd get at a Hadar seminar. Frankincense has never been and is not a cosmetic. Note to self, when going on a date, do not put on frankincense. It is not an appealing smell for that purpose. Frankincense in ancient Israel was reserved for use in the temple to accompany sacrifices and create a reach nichoach for God. So when you say that a woman is wearing frankincense, I am skeptical that you are at that point talking about the woman at all anymore. And you wonder whether in this incredibly moving way, as Davis suggests, the bride who is Israel is now being described as herself a sacrificial offering to God. Now, I'm going to get some groans here, but that would also make interesting use of the word mizot ola min hamidvar, who is this who comes up? Because ola, as you know, is associated with the sacrifice ola, and also with the idea of aliyah la regel, of going up to see God during this time of year. This is this comment that Ellen Davis makes, I think is really interesting and gorgeous. And if you don't buy it as shot, it's still an amazing sermon at minimum. When we come before God in true worship, God sees us not as dutiful, but rather as beautiful, even irresistible, like a bride perfumed for her husband. It is almost too bold to say, when we worship God truly, God's desire for us grows. After countless passages in the Bible that express God's anguished love, the song assures us that God, the gracious Lord, may still look at the world, at Israel, at the church, at our souls, obviously this is a Christian writer, and catch his breath at the beauty of the bride. Mizot olamin hamidbar. Who is this that comes from the desert adorned with sacrificial perfume? That's not a translation, but you understand what I'm saying. This is for me a little bit kind of what pushes me over the edge. I'd be 50-50 on a lot of this until I got to this one and one more that we're going to get to in a minute. So in describing this is a very strange scene in, in Song of Songs, the interpretation of which is extremely heavily debated. There is some kind of palanquin, some kind of like a, a, a fancy chair that seems to be the palanquin of Solomon, although it's not clear what he's doing there exactly. And it is made out of argaman. It is made with gold and purple wool. All of that is also used for whatever it's worth in the construction of the Mishkan, which leads the rabbinic tradition to see these verses as referring specifically to the Mishkan. Okay? So do that with that as you will. That's one of the ones I think is, the, is one of the weaker links, but I think it's just interesting because the tradition already sees it that way. And then again, I will go to the Mount of Myrrh, to the Hill of Frankincense. Again, myrrh and frankincense are the, are the smells of the Beit HaMikdash. So again, the intimacy, not just between these two lovers, but the intimacy between God and Israel is potentially evoked here. From Lebanon, come with me. From Lebanon, my bride, with me. Trip down from Amana's peak, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, 
from the dens of lions, from the hills of leopards. You have captured my heart, my own, my bride. Libaftini, you have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one coil of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my own, my bride. How much more delightful your love than wine, your ointments more fragrant than any spice. Sweetness drops from your, drips from your lips, O bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the scent of your robes is like the scent of Lebanon. A garden locked is my own, my bride, a fountain locked, a sealed up spring. Your limbs are an orchard of pomegranates and of all luscious fruits, of henna and of nard, nard and saffron, fragrant reed and cinnamon, with all aromatic woods, myrrh and, myrrh and aloes, all the choice perfumes. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, a rill of Lebanon. I want to just observe something that we're not going to have the time to talk about, and it's not exactly our topic. But one of the things that is really striking, if you read the Song of Songs over and over again, you realize that with all of the time that is spent describing the beautifulness of both the male lover and the female lover, you never have any idea at all what either of them look like. Like none whatsoever. And what that means, I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of things you can say about that. Does that mean that it's not really about them? Does it mean a discomfort with their totally physical form? Is it a point beyond their physical form? I'm not sure what it means exactly, but it is really quite striking. The image of the garden, at least, is most developed here. And remember what I said earlier about that the song represents a return to Gan Eden, um, where humanity once fully enjoyed um, full intimacy with God. And also, though, and this is the key point in the cumulative case, please recall that for ancient Israel, the temple is the garden. The Beit HaMikdash is just as, for example, the, the garden has rivers running through it, the Beit HaMikdash is imagined as being a source of water, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these images where the temple is the kind, a kind of garden of Eden. It's also striking, if you buy this, that the song was likely written at a time when Israel was a vassal state. And so if this is really an image of God's undying love for Israel, that's quite a comforting notion for a people who are oppressed and wondering, really, we're God's chosen people? This is what chosenness looks like? So there's, I think, some, some, some interesting stuff to play with there. Now, also, relatively quickly, your limbs are like an orchard of pomegranates. Of course, by the way, one of the things that you notice as a reader of this text is that we live in such a different time that some of these images strike us as downright bizarre. And Actually, in fact, some, uh, this is not a literature that I've yet really d dove into, dived into. There are some scholars who, who are interested in the notion that the picture of the woman here actually borders on the grotesque at times and wondering why that might be. Why in this incredible poem that describes seemingly the gorgeousness of people's bodies are some of the images so strange. But what I wanted to just notice here is that each of the two great pillars of the forecourt of the Beit HaMikdash were decorated with hundreds of pomegranates. And if you think that that is a relevant allusion, it is worth noting that in the book of Second Kings, the Babylonians carry off these pomegranates as scrap metal. And so maybe if it's an allusion here, this is an attempt to re-describe life 
renewed and restored with God, with a temple functioning and thriving. Okay? Now, picture a land that is an incredibly lush garden. And the interesting thing is that nobody living in the semi-arid land of ancient Israel could have imagined a garden quite this lush in real life, except for the one place where they imagine that water flows freely, which is the Beit HaMikdash. See, for example, Psalm 36 and Psalm 46. One of the things that is striking about this poem is that again and again, you have references not only potentially to God, but certainly to the temple and a hope of a restoration of that place and of the healing that goes along with that, okay? Now, this is a little bit the clincher for me. If I don't have you here, Noah Arno, I'm not gonna have you at all. She says, Dodi shalach yado minachor, umei hamu alav. My lover, my beloved, literally took his hand from the latch and my heart was stirred for him. I feel that in the interests of kind of intellectual honesty, I should point out that this is often understood to be the most graphically sexual verse in the Song of Songs. And it's, again, the author reveling in ambiguity. Literally means he either took his hand off or put his hand on the latch, but it also might mean I, I forgive me the crudeness, but this is what it means, right? He put his hand in the hole. Umei hamualav, and my insides churned for him. And that is read by many scholars as a description of orgasm. That this is like the height of the sexuality of the Song of Songs. And in addition, the phrase may I hamualav, my innards churned. I really don't like the JPS here. My heart was stirred because it does not let us sit with the raw physicality of this image. May I am are not a heart. May I am are your belly or your insides. Okay. What I think is really interesting about the phrase may I hamualav is that this phrase appears three times in Tanakh. And one of them is one of the most famous and well-loved verses about God's love for Israel. We know this, many of us, from the Rosh Hashanah Tfilah, where it appears, where God in Jeremiah says, Haben yakirli Ephraim, Ephraim is a dear beloved son to me, im yeled shashuim, a son that I dandle, that I, that I hold in my arms and play with. Mikimidei dabrivo zachor eskirenu ot. Whenever I have turned against him, I nevertheless would think about him constantly. Al Cain, for that reason, Hamume Ailo, my innards churned for him. Rachem Arachamenu, I will receive him back in mercy. Neum Hashem, declares God. Now, what am I suggesting is going on here? If this is right, and here again, I would say, even if this is wrong, this is an amazing midrash. Even if it's wrong, it's shot. It's an amazing midrash. But I suggest it's more than that. So here, God is being consoled by the Song of Songs. Because Hamume Ailo is what God feels in God's frustration with Israel's constant recalcitrant turning away from God. And here, Israel says to God, I love you that much too. Hamume I love. 
My innards churn for you just as your innards churn for me. We're in this together. You don't have unrequited love, God. I love you too. God's love is at last reciprocated. The thing God had been hoping for throughout the Tanakh, now God gets in the Song of Songs. This is how Jews and Christians traditionally read this in many ways. That is that God's love is finally, 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 God gets not jilted. What's the opposite of jilted? I don't know. Embraced, reciprocated. I'll make up a word, mutualized. This to me is actually like one of the most powerful possibilities here. That phrase, hamumei, is really interesting. Is God elusive? Big time. And I think one of the structures of theology in Tanakh is that as Tanakh goes on, God becomes less manifestly present. Where is God in the book of Esther? Where is God explicitly in the Song of Songs? Where is God explicitly, other than by illusion of characters, in the book of Ruth? What kind of God is it in the book of Ecclesiastes? This is, by the way, something that has also been, it's been argued by a variety of Bible scholars in a popular idiom was argued by Richard Elliott Friedman in a book that came out two different times under two titles. So I'm now forgetting both. One is called The Disappearance of God, about basically as Tanakh goes on, God takes a step further and further back. Those of you who are familiar with, with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's theology, his whole notion of Chazal ushering in a second era of, of Jewish history Bible scholars sort of imply that that already happens in Tanakh itself, where God takes a step back. back. Contrast Exodus with Esther. And then also remember that the rabbis say in an amazingly interesting moment, the covenant of Sinai was renewed during the time of Esther. They were willing to accept God as their God, even at a time when God was not present in the same way that God used to be. Again, as I said at the outset, it is also an allegory. And one of the things I like about the also an allegory is that it insists, if it's also an allegory, then it holds on in a deeper way to the connections between interhuman love and human divine love. Some Bible scholars who are highly skeptical of the allegorical reading, some of them appeal to the argument that says, really, you're telling me that a poem that almost explicitly alludes to penetration and orgasm. Really, that's an allegory to God in Israel? Like, isn't it too earthy? It's one thing to talk about my soul loves you. It's another thing to say, shalach yadomin achor. I mean, really? I don't know. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's not right. Okay, so you have here, anila dodi vidodili, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, or perhaps I am for my beloved and my beloved is for me. Some people hear in this, vayiti lachem leelohim, vatemtiyuli le'am. I will be for you and you will be for me. And there's a way in which anila dodi vidodili is a way of capturing the wholeheartedness that is envisioned as the full maturation and blossoming of the covenant, something like that. I am for you and you are for me, total mutuality. By the way, that verse that I just quoted, is amazing. I'm actually right about this in my current book project because is a vision of Eden being restored to the whole land of Israel. Because that phrase, uses one other time, which is God, 
So the whole land of Israel will be turned into a Garden of Eden, which I think is just a gorgeous and moving image. Second to lastly, he says to her, You are beautiful as Tirzah, as gorgeous as Jerusalem. I just want to point out that of the eight occurrences of the word Na'ava in the Bible, four of them refer to Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash, and the link between the woman and the holy city of Yerushalayim is perhaps thereby reinforced. We say that, by the way, in Kabbalat Shabbat, in Psalm 93, Na'ava Kodesh. Okay? And then, finally, God... In the book of Jeremiah, wears Israel's appointed ruler like a seal, like a, a seal ring. And when the people in Jeremiah 22 get sent into exile, the seal, as it were, is torn off of God. So when the lover says, Place me as a seal upon your heart. Like a seal on your arm, one wonders whether God is here being invited to put on a new seal as a symbol of the renewal of the covenant between God and Israel after exile. Okay? And then, really interesting, when she says, Kashachi Sha'ol Kin'ah, jealousy is as strong is as hard as Sheol. So jealousy is seen as positive in Tanakh only in the context of God's unique love for Israel. This is actually Ellen Davis's argument is that often the kinah of God ends up manifesting as a threat to Israel. If you worship idols, my kinah, my jealousy will burn up against you. And here, it's almost like the kinah becomes a promise. Mutually devoted love, a flame of God, is a sign of promise, the renewal of God's relationship with Israel. And you see perhaps an allusion to that in, in, in the verse I brought from Zechariah. And, and the image of God putting on a new seal, I should have said this, is explicit in Haggai, where God says, in some future time, I will take the king and I will again place him as a seal upon me. So Simeni Kachotam Alibecha may be an allusion to Chagai's image of the monarchy and by extension, the whole covenantal relationship being renewed and restored to a healthy and more vigorous place. Rabbi Sharon Perlman's comment, it's actually a great way to end. Growing up in Yeshiva, we were taught that if you thought this was a love poem, you had a dirty mind. Then there was a time when it resonated only as a love poem. This both and reading feels like a healthier integration of the Eros and the Midrashic religious. So that's in a way partially what appeals to me about this. It is robust in its capaciousness. How's that for a way of saying it, right? It, it, it is able to hold together things that many religious and irreligious people insist must be utterly separated. It is either A or B. What if it's A and B? And sexuality need not be something to be ashamed of. Maybe that's one of the things, you know, it's really interesting. I, I asked a group of people I was discussing Song of Songs with recently would you teach this text to teenagers? And if so, how? And we were talking about really reading it closely, the shot, 
which is highly eroticized. And one of them said, no, they're too young. I wouldn't want to be learning that with them. They don't have the maturity to handle it. And then someone else said, actually, I would love to give them a religious text, a biblical text that says, you know what? I don't express one iota of shame for being a sexual being. I was created that way. That's part of how God made me. And that I think is, is, is interesting too. I mean, at the risk of saying it almost too simplistically, one of the things that's so powerful about poetry is that its elusiveness allows it to become, to come alive in a range of very different settings. How do you determine, or do you determine, what you think is two texts explicitly, consciously talking to each other, and what is, quote unquote, simply midrashic? I, 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 the word simply should never modify midrashic, because midrash is endlessly complex and rich. In other words, and, and what's your investment? Does it matter? Does it matter whether the reading that Ellen Davis has put forward is pshat or drash? Matters if you're an academic. Does it matter for us as religious Jews, Jewish seekers, whatever you, language you might want to use? I'm not sure. I think many of us would answer that question differently from others of us. I just want to mention that. And, and actually, there is a great deal of debate among Bible scholars about what exactly the, the, the term intertextuality should refer to. Does it refer to conscious illusions or does it refer simply to what is possible in terms of reading two texts and seeing words reappear or phrases reappear? Um, God willing, in five years, I'll be able to give a better sheer on methodology on this because I don't, I, don't, I don't have those answers yet. I'm just beginning to work on, on, on that question and, and what it should and shouldn't mean, frankly, what's at stake in it for us as religious Jews. So whether you buy this as shot or not, I hope that this at least opened up some windows for you in thinking about this book in new and different and, and rich ways. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you.